This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. guest is Marianne Ingheim. She's a PhD student at the California Institute of Integral Studies and the author of Out of Love, Finding Your Way Back to Self-Compassion. Marianne, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. How did you get drawn into the practice of self-compassion? How did that begin? So, a few years ago, I watched a Sounds True interview with Kristen Neff. She's one of the key researchers on self-compassion. And I was so intrigued by it. I, I read her book, and I started reading more books on self-compassion. Um, Christopher Germer, Tara Brock, Brene Brown. And I just began to realize that there was a different way I could treat myself. I didn't have to be so self-critical. I think we learn to be self-critical from a young age, you know, from our parents and teachers, the church. I grew up in a really strict religious home, and so I believe that I was inherently flawed, that I was born bad, and I had to try really hard to be good, to be loved. And so I, I realized as I was reading Kristen's book that I had a very harsh inner critic. And I, so I think we internalize the voices of our primary caregivers. And as I was reading this, I discovered, you know, wow, I really have a harsh inner critic. And I started to question many of these core narratives that I'd grown up with. And I ended up leaving the church. And I have to say, I was conceptually understanding self-compassion, but I hadn't yet made the leap to feeling it and practicing it. That happened after I had a wake-up call in 2016. I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I had a double mastectomy. And the thing about having cancer was it gives you a lot of time to think and I reflected a lot about where I was in my life. Was I the person I thought I was meant to be here? I honestly didn't feel like I was fulfilling my purpose. And part of the problem was I had surrounded myself with critical people. You know, we tend to be drawn to the same kinds of people as we grew up with. And my husband, he was very controlling, and I felt constrained in our relationship. I didn't feel like I could grow. And so, you know, we've been married for almost 10 years. So it was a very difficult decision to leave him. I agonized a lot about how I was going to tell him. And eventually I did with the help of a therapist. And unfortunately, that night, I got a call from the sheriff's department about a car crash. And later I found a suicide note. And, you know, it's really heartbreaking. I never imagined that he would do this. And, of course, I blamed myself for his death. 
my inner critic was very harsh at the time, and I wasn't sure how to go on. How was I going to make sense of all this? I mean, in the course of six months, I'd had cancer, and my husband had committed suicide. So it was like I really needed to practice self-compassion more than ever. And what that looked like in the beginning was self-care. So just taking it one step at a time, one day at a time, and making sure I was taking care of my physical needs. Was I sleeping? Was I eating? And then later, when I got sort of past that initial trauma state, it was about meaning-making. And this is part of my, my research. I, I just really believe that we choose what story to tell ourselves about the things that happen to us. And story is one of the key ways we make meaning. And so it was very important to me to figure out how was this event, these events going to fit into my life story? What meaning was I going to make out of it? And so I journaled a lot. I continued reading about self-compassion. I went back to school to get my Ph.D., and I'm researching self-compassion and how we make meaning after an adverse event. And then I, I wrote the book Out of Love, which was a way for me to make meaning. That's kind of what writing does for me. It's a way of understanding what has happened. And of course, I also wrote it because I wanted to share how I got to the other side and Really, it was self-compassion that brought me through all this. So I'm, I'm really curious the connection between making meaning and developing self-compassion. Yeah. Um, so it has to do with story, I think. We tell ourselves stories about, you know, about who we are, about who we are in the world. And unfortunately, many of those stories are self-critical and limiting. So a big part of my process was questioning the stories, like our core narratives, our beliefs about who we are and the world. So for example, one of my core narratives was that I'm never going to be good enough. And so self-compassion was part of the process of changing that narrative. So first, of course, noticing what's, what story am I telling myself? And is that a beneficial story? Does it work with my life? Is this who I believe I am? And so adversity was a really good opportunity to question those narratives and rewrite them, you know, make a new kind of meaning that was self-compassionate instead of self-critical. And maybe I should talk a little bit about what self-compassion is. Yeah. So it's similar to the concept of compassion, which means to suffer with and to want to alleviate the suffering. So self-compassion is compassion turned inwards. So you notice your suffering and you want to alleviate that suffering. And essentially, you're treating yourself like you would treat your best friend. Kristen Neff, who I mentioned in the beginning, she defines self-compassion as containing three elements, self-kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity. And all these things are super important and interrelated and enhance each other. So I'll talk about what each of them is. Self-kindness is about being kind to yourself instead of judgmental. So it's about our self-talk, about making self-compassionate choices and being able to soothe yourself when you're emotionally reactive. It's about self-care. So that's self-kindness. And then mindfulness is awareness and acceptance of what is. So not resisting it and not over-identifying with it. And then the third one, common humanity, is essentially the realization that we're all in this together. We all suffer. Suffering is just 
part of being human, and so we we feel connected to each other rather than alone. So those are the three, self-kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity. For an image of how I think of self-compassion, Jane Oshia, the poet, has a poem she calls The Hammock of My Heart. And I, I think of that image when I think of self-compassion. It's a place within yourself that you can always return to and rest. And I find it very empowering to realize that I can actually take care of myself. I can actually be sort of the container for myself. So this act of being a container for yourself, what does that mean, being a container for yourself, and how it relates to being kind to oneself? Sometimes I think of it in terms of, or I feel it in terms of my ability to hold things in my heart, to open up my heart in a way that I can contain more and more. Mm -hmm. Like a brief example, I lived for about a year in the north end of Oakland because I I had fallen in love with an old girlfriend and I decided to move in with her to to drive across country to move in with her. And it turned out to be almost a year of living hell. And Mm. later, after a series of disastrous occurrences, I realized that I deeply loved this person and that none of the things that she had done or that had happened could change that. That she, like all the other people that I've loved in my life, are like permanently in my heart and mm. and it's like I get bigger there's a song by Bruce Coburn called I'm not exactly sure what it's called but there's a great line in it I get bigger as I go mm-hmm. oh I, like, I love that yeah and I liken that to this concept of a container that my container gets bigger my ability to hold and embrace a wider range of life experience, you know, mm-hmm. in, including, including, you know, the entire spectrum, because life is full of a spectrum of experience from pleasant to, to very unpleasant and uncomfortable and joy and misery and pleasure and pain and all kinds oh, of, right. yeah, so that's... Yeah, and it, it's like you can contain all of those different feelings without being lost. Exactly. Um, yeah. Like you can hold the sadness and the joy without being lost. Without getting overwhelmed and, by one side yeah. or the other. Without getting addicted right. to the positive side and without doing everything possible to push the other side away. Yeah, it's kind of like with the Buddhists talk about the second arrow. So there's the suffering you're going through and then there's the talk and all the resistance to the pain, which actually makes the suffering worse. Mm-hmm. If we can let go of the attachment, let go of the outcome, and it's not that we like what's happening, but that we are able to accept it for what it is. You know, when I was recovering from surgeries after my cancer, the strangest thing happened. I was in a lot of pain. Whenever I resisted the pain, it got worse. And when I just leaned into it, and of course I didn't like it, but I leaned into it and it just made the pain less. And I think the same goes for emotional pain. This idea of being able to lean into whatever it is and know that you're going to be okay. It's, it's really about trusting yourself. Do I trust myself to handle whatever is going to happen? I and that's very empowering. Yeah. I love that notion of leaning in. There's another line from the Buddhist tradition that pain is inevitable, but suffering mm-hmm. is optional. Right. Right. It's the way we respond to the pain. And that's what that's what you were just talking about. And this notion of leaning in, leaning in towards 
the pain or leaning in towards something that's that's either very uncomfortable or deeply disturbing that's so counterintuitive to what we've grown up with right right we strive for the positive and you know we call good feelings and bad feelings and good experiences bad experiences well in a sense it all just is what it is and in our culture we seem to be obsessed with always presenting the positive side of things maybe it, it mm-hmm. maybe it stems from from the old puritan tradition that you have to be good you have to be pure and that you know god is good and and on the other side is evil the devil as if they're separate things <laughs> as if there's such a possibility right. of things being yeah. that, that separate yeah it's this black and white thinking good and evil um us and them it's in a way a very comforting kind of paradigm but i think it's very dangerous and this is why i think we need to have narrative flexibility so that we aren't getting stuck into a narrative you know like this is the absolute truth and i'm going to cling to this forever no matter what and be open to oh there are other ways of thinking about this other ways of telling the story yeah other ways of seeing this thing that just happened to me or mm-hmm. or even other ways of thinking about myself or who we are right and i i love this notion of narratives and stories you know the stories begin when we're young before we're able to question them so we live those mm-hmm. stories as if they are absolute solid reality Mhm. And it's so hard to see past that. Yeah, when you're inside a story, it's very hard to see that there might be other other stories and this is why I think adversity can be an opportunity because it really wakes you up to, "Oh my gosh, what am I what am I doing? How am I living? Who who am I? Is this the life I really want to live, you know?" And I wish it didn't have to be adversity that would wake us up, but some of us need that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, it can be beneficial in that it's an opportunity to, to just kind of notice the stories. And for me, journaling has helped a lot with sort of becoming aware of these negative beliefs that I've taken on questioning the church that I grew up in, you know, just because I grew up in it doesn't mean that that's a story I want to keep living. And it's hard to question those things that we grew up with, but I think it's important. So how does journaling or how has journaling helped you to do that? So I've always journaled since I was well maybe 12 or something like that. And the thing the thing I want to say about journaling is it's important to get beyond the it's easy for it to just become a negative rant that kind of just reinforces all the negative and you just go on and on and on about how shit everything is but getting deeper than that digging deeper than that and so there are different journaling techniques like for example dialoguing I've done a lot of dialoguing with different parts of myself so I'll dialogue with the inner critic or some aspect of the inner critic like the perfectionist dialoguing with my body a lot of times you know I we're just running around and not aware of what's going on until we get sick or we snap at somebody and so journaling for me has been a way of checking in with myself to see what is going on and am i sort of living in alignment with my values and you know a lot of times it's my body that tells me first when something's wrong and sometimes i pay attention sometimes i don't but that's where the journaling has helped me to 
I don't know, maybe <laughs> maybe it sounds weird, but you know, like I'll journal, I'll dialogue with my body. Does that make sense? <laughs> it totally makes sense to me, and I just I love this whole concept because to me it it seems like it opens up new new realms of possibility, new horizons of of possibility because it's it often seems like these stories go unquestioned unless we mm-hmm. find a way to see them as stories and I do very little journaling I don't do much writing and I kind of regret that or or wish I was more inclined in that way but I I just don't have that discipline or or inclination but I have seen how when I write things it gives me a new perspective because I'm actually, and I've done some of those kind of dialoguing exercises at different times in my life, and it's given me the opportunity to see that these narratives, these these mm-hmm. things that, that I tell myself and tend to tell myself over and over again, are just narratives. They're like storylines, mm-hmm. and they're like these default tape loops that if left unchecked and unquestioned, we'll just keep going over and over and over again and will have a profound effect on my life in an ongoing way. Right. Yeah, I don't think we we realize how our stories affect our well-being and the decisions we make. And so like you're saying, if they go unchecked, if we're, if we're not even aware of them, we're kind of giving up some of our power. Power that we didn't even know we had because it there's this this strange thing because you just mentioned how you were you alluded to how these stories they exist at an unconscious or subconscious level inside mm-hmm. of us and how we get to down into that that underworld realm to look at these things to be able to to really genuinely question them, which is a step before we can even consider creating new stories or reframing those stories or or just being able to see those stories in a new light. This is a complicated mm-hmm. kind of a thing, and I, I guess you really have to take it one step at a time. And it seems like journaling is a wonderful doorway mm-hmm. into that. Yes. And I'm not saying journaling is the only way. Some people work with images like collage or even, you know, doing yoga, going for a walk, anything that will help us to tap into our intuition, that deeper part of us that knows. There's another journaling exercise I like, which is dialoguing with my inner wisdom. Because a lot of times I just don't, know what I want. I want lots of things and I'm confused. And so just dialogue, it's it's really amazing how just asking the question to my inner wisdom without thinking about it, just let the pen go. And these answers come out like, wow, yeah, that's that's what I want. That's what I mean. So it's it's pretty profound. And that's also why I wanted to in my book, Out of Love, each chapter ends with a couple of journaling exercises. And of course, you can just think about the questions. You don't necessarily have to write it down. But like you said, there is something about writing it. It takes it from your psyche and puts it on paper separate from yourself. And so you can look at it from a removed perspective. One of the things that I really loved about your book is at the end of each chapter, as you say, you call them journaling exercises, but I saw them as these questions that you would ask or that you would pose. And what I found so powerful about those questions is that they, they open things up. They give us a new perspective on things that, for the most part, we probably never even considered asking ourselves. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. I'm reflecting back on my writing. I, I, I mentioned earlier that I don't write much, but actually I, I realized I do write a lot. And because when I read books like your book and other books for these interviews, 
I'm always writing as I'm reading. So sometimes mm. I'll, I'll write up to like 20 pages of notes and, and I'll also write insights that I have as well as writing questions or other things to bring to the interview. Mm -hmm. And also in that process, I will find myself often, very, very often, being drawn inside to do deep self-inquiry into mm -hmm. my own experience and stories. And sometimes just going into just silence, just being drawn into this silence that sometimes what I read stimulates me to just be present with what is. Right, right. And I have a chapter in the book about being the expert on yourself. And I tend to, I'm a reader, I'm, <laughs> I'm a PhD student, I read a lot, and I love reading new perspectives on things. And the one thing that I notice with that about myself is that I, I tend to defer to the experts rather than checking in with my own intuition. And so I, I, I think it's great to read books and self-help books and so on, but not to forget that there's a lot of wisdom inside us. And in, in reality, we're the expert on ourselves. And there's another thing I find in, in a lot of, especially self-help books, this idea that something is broken in you, this book will fix whatever is broken. <laughs> and I just don't buy that. I, I think we're already whole. There may be parts of us where there are some, there's some chips, some scars and whatnot, but we don't need to be fixed. We just need to get silent and check in with ourselves. Yes. This leads me to something that I wanted to ask you about, and you write about it in your book in a really beautiful way, and that is getting clear about what it is that we really want and not, mm -hmm. not what we think we should want or what we've learned to want or, or been told that we should want, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's from our parents or teachers or advertising or or whatever mm -hmm. you know yeah i want to talk a little bit because this ties in in with that about why we are so self-critical it has to do i think with our desire for belonging which goes you know back to our hunter-gatherer days when a person who was alone wouldn't survive if you were in part of a group, you were more likely to survive. And so we compare ourselves to each other to see how we measure up. And that's where the criticism comes in. You know, we, we essentially self-criticize in order to preempt criticism from other people so that we can make sure that we're accepted by the group and we fit in. And the problem with that, of course, is that we lose sight of what is it that we truly want. We're so busy maybe people-pleasing or trying not to disappoint someone. And so a lot of the self-compassion practice for me has been, you know, is this just something my grandma wanted me to do or is it really something that I feel called to do? And I love Danielle Laporte's book, The Desire Map. She talks about how all of us have core desires she says three to five core desires. And so instead of thinking about goals, think about desires. So one of my core desires is to be creative. And so if I think about just doing things, putting things on my to-do list that make me feel creative versus, you know, oh, here's a goal that I should achieve. I, sh I should do this because it's, you know, at my age, we should have achieved X, Y, Z. I, I find that to be a helpful way of thinking about what I want. Does it align with my core desire? How do I want to feel in my life when I look back on it? Was I creative? Yeah, and there's a beautiful thing that I've learned that, that's directly connected with what you're just saying, and that is when we look at 
you know, investigate the things that we want or that we think we want is to ask ourselves, what is it that my achieving that or getting that will give me? What would that feel like? What's the feeling that I, I would get from mm-hmm. achieving this? Because it seems my experience is, and what I've learned is that it's the feeling that we're really looking for and that we're really wanting. It's exactly. The, it's not the thing. The thing isn't, mm-hmm. because I think most of us have learned if, if we look at it, if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, no matter how important any particular thing is, as soon as we get it, we tend to get bored with it, and then we, we mm-hmm. move on to what's the next thing I want, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's, it's the feeling. It's not the thing itself. So when we focus on the feeling that we're wanting to experience, that completely changes our orientation towards mm-hmm. our desire. And right. that is such a powerful thing to work with, I think. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it helped me a lot to realize, you know, just discovering what these core feelings is a great word to use, that I wanted was, it shifted the way I thought about, like, I've, I've always had sort of this pressure to achieve. And maybe this is my you know, upbringing or whatever, but I, I'm a perfectionist and I got to always produce something. I got to be achieving something. And this is why my inner critic's favorite time to criticize me is when I'm sick because then I'm useless, right? I'm not achieving anything. I'm not producing like I should be. But that's actually a fear-based way of looking at it. Whereas if I'm doing things out of love not fear. I'm doing them because I'm passionate about them. It shifts the whole thing from, I don't know, it just shifts your focus. Yeah. There's fascinating work of Barbara Fredrickson about love and fear that, mm. that's worth checking out. She wrote a book maybe about 10 years ago or so called Love 2.0. She takes a scientific approach to it, which is really fascinating. But I really want to go back to what you were saying about wanting to belong, because mm. there's this tension that we often experience between the desire to belong and also to be ourselves, you know, to be truly who we are. And that I think mm-hmm. most people in our society are continually living in that tension you know, those two elements being completely at odds with each other and us being caught in the middle. Right. And somewhere in my book, I say that belonging starts with ourselves. And what I mean is, if we're trying to please other people, that's actually not true belonging. True belonging is about being who you are. And I think that starts with yourself. I mean, we talk about we want to be authentic. Well, first we got to like ourselves. It's really hard to be authentic if you don't like who you are. And so the first part, I believe, is to find the love for yourself. And then from that place, you can build healthy relationships that aren't codependent, where you aren't just trying to fit in, but where there's true belonging. That's not an easy place to get to, though. It's not. It's not. And I think it's so ingrained in us that we want to fit in because that's part of how we survived all these years. You know, it's because we fit in. I think there's this evolutionary component to it. I mean, essentially, we are the descendants of the people who fit in, the people who worried the most, the people who, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, per- perhaps <laughs> even sacrificed themselves in order to fit in? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's not like belonging is a bad thing. It's just being aware of... How we do it? Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, that it's such a conundrum. It's such a profound conundrum in our culture, and... 
and comparison. We, oh yeah. When you were talking about that, it reminded me one of my favorite people in the world is was Marshall Rosenberg. I don't know mm. if you're familiar with him and his work. Yeah. He occasionally refers to a book by Dan Greenberg, How to Make Yourself Miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and and basically the foolproof way to make yourself feel miserable is to compare yourself with others. <laughs> right. And he loves to use that example. Yeah. And you know, I think especially in our culture where you know, average is not acceptable. We have to be the best, right? And so we are comparing ourselves constantly to other people. How are we measuring up? And of course, we can't all be the best, right? Some of us have to be average. Um. <laughs> and it's so funny because when people are asked to rate themselves in terms of average, they say that about 80% of the population believes that they're above average. Which, right. of, which, of course, is a statistical impossibility. Impossibility, <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's interesting because I grew up partly in Denmark and partly in America. And there's, a, I think it's changing a little bit now with globalization. But when I grew up some 40 years ago, in Scandinavia, there's this mentality of mediocrity. So it's like the opposite of the American, you've got to be the best in this mentality, don't think you're better than anyone else. Don't stick out too much. And so I had this weird thing where my American inner critic was telling me, you got to be the best, you got to achieve. And my Danish inner critic was telling me, don't stand out, don't think you're better than anyone else. Very confusing. And so I, I, I think our inner critic is definitely a product of our culture. And likewise, our resistance to self-compassion. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful line in the book, hustling for worthiness. Yeah. It's like in this country, we apply salesmanship to our lives and the way we relate to other people to a large degree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That world of, of hustling for worthiness, I think, is mm -hmm. it, which is why I just loved that line of yours. Yeah, so that's actually uh, a Brene Brown phrase. She talks about, essentially, in order to feel like we belong, we're constantly proving to people that we are worthy to belong. And so a lot of this hustling is tied to belonging, comparing yourself with the neighbor who has the bigger house or the nicer car, and it's a trap Mm -hmm. And we've all been brought up to believe that we have to behave and be certain ways for other people to like us. But in the book, you point out that's actually not what other people are really looking for from us. And I would love for you to talk about what people really are looking to us for or wanting from us. Because that mm. other game is a false game. It's like we're pretending, we're putting masks on and we're playing mm -hmm. this acting game on a stage, and it's all false. Whereas right. I think we all want to be ourselves. We all want to be seen for who we really are, even though mm -hmm. we're also terrified of being seen <laughs> at the same right. time. Right. So it's, it's complicated. And I, I would just love for you to you talk about that dynamic and what it is that, that you think people are really looking for from us. You know, right. do they really want us to prove to them that we're worthy and great, or do they really want us to be authentically ourselves? Right. Well, it depends on whether your authenticity is something that they approve of. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking with Marianne Ingheim. She's the author of Out of Love, Finding Our Way Back to Self-Compassion. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. But I do think that most of us want to know that the person you're showing me is the real you. I mean, it's, it's kind of complicated because on the one hand, we are always selling ourselves. We're always, you know, we, we talk differently in different contexts with different people. And so there is a little bit of that stage-like interaction. 
and I'm actually talking more in terms of, you know, when we're with our friends or people that we want to be our friends and, and also yeah. with the people that we, we love and care about, like our family members, because often we don't feel right. safe enough to really reveal who we most deeply are, even with our family or even right. some of our friends sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it can be more difficult with, for example, family. For many years, I hid from my family a lot of stuff. And it's a very difficult way to live, you know, when you're keeping secrets. And, you know, in my case, it was a lot about keeping up the facade of still being in the church while not being in the church or doing things that the church my parents would not approve of. And in the end, I kind of lost who I was because, you know, I could basically be whoever you wanted me to be. So, you know, part of my journey was to to take the chance to be authentic, which, you know, some people are going to reject you. There are family members who just don't talk to me anymore. And that's kind of the risk you have to be willing to take at some point. But it really helps to have that self-compassion, that kind of, okay, I'm okay in myself, whether or not this person accepts me. If they don't, that's their problem. It takes a lot of work to get to that place, though, because we want to be loved. But I think, to your question, I think most of us want to have authentic relationships. I think maybe we don't know how. Mm -hmm. I think it's very stressful to not be authentically who we are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's very stressful. And it, you know, it doesn't feel right. It drains your energy. You're spending so much time being someone else. It requires a lot more energy than just being yourself. Yeah. And even the Western medical profession is starting to recognize that stress is the biggest cause of disease. Mm -hmm. So that makes yeah. this whole thing that we're talking about really important. Yeah, you know, when I got cancer, I think that was really my body trying to tell me. Um, before I had cancer, I'd been sick for two years with this mysterious stomach illness that no doctor could diagnose. There was nothing wrong with me. It was all in my head. And then I had cancer, which is a recognized illness. And so, you know, I, I got treatment. And I think it was both the same kind of thing. Something inside me was trying to wake me up to say, this is not, the last 10 years have not been the path you are supposed to be on. And so illness can be, I mean, it doesn't have to be, but at least in my case, it was a sign of not living in alignment does that make sense? Absolutely. And it makes me think of this pandemic that we're, we're going through. And, and what is mm -hmm. that trying to tell us as a species on the planet? You know, and oh, yeah. And also, how, do, how does that relate to the need for self compassion on a collective level? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think right now we're in sort of that early traumatic stage where all we can think about is, it's sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The very bottom is our need for safety. And so that's kind of where we all are right now. But once we get further, you know, on the other side, I think it's going to be important for us to make meaning and learn whatever it is we're supposed to learn from this. You know, what is our collective story going to be and yeah what lesson are we meant to learn from this i absolutely think that there is something to be learned here and as far as self-compassion you know right now i think we're we're at the stage where we just need to practice a lot of self-care and then when we get to the other side you know, self-compassion and compassion for others, compassion for our planet, it's all connected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because there was this program at Stanford on compassion. The traditional Buddhist 
way of approaching compassion is you start with yourself and then you go to other people. In the program, they had to switch it around because Westerners had such a hard time having compassion for themselves. So they started off with other people and then kind of snuck ourselves into it. <laughs> and which makes me wonder, like, what is there something about our Western culture that makes us have such a difficult time having compassion for ourselves? Like, it's easier in some ways. Well, it makes it makes sense to me because, you know, even if we're not directly part of the Judeo-Christian religious culture, we're, you know, profoundly affected by this notion of original sin and that mm -hmm. there's something fundamentally wrong with us. Right. Right. And even if we don't intellectually believe that that's true, it's a part of our collective story, our collective unconscious, as Jung would say. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's something we as a collective still need to deal with, I think. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do we come up with a different story? <laughs> right, right, on a collective level. And that's where I was, that's where I think I was leaning when I was asking about self-compassion at a collective level. I don't mean that each person has a similar kind of story. I mean, as a collective, as, as a species, how we recognize our essential human condition on the planet and the circumstances that we've created for ourselves as a cultural and even a species-wide story or the, the species-wide mm -hmm. stories that we've imposed upon ourselves, you know, whether they're political or economic or cultural or social, because, you know, we've been living in, in a time of, I would say, rapidly increasing change in many ways, mm -hmm. socially at least, not so much politically and economically, although because of the circumstances of this pandemic, we may be getting propelled to change those stories as well. We have to wait and see. Yeah. But that's what I mean by this collective story and our need for a collective level of self-compassion to create, to examine the old story that we've been living with for perhaps hundreds or even thousands of years and having the self-compassion and self-kindness to really start creating new stories for humanity as a whole. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the the planet as one being, mm -hmm. you know, I talked about having compassion for the different parts of myself. Well, how can the having compassion for everyone and everything because we are interconnected? And I think we're seeing that, of course, very clearly now that one person's behavior over here is going to affect a lot of other people over there. And so this idea of us being one unit and having self-compassion for all of the different parts of this one unit. You know, we think of it as there's me and there's you, us and them. But that's really not true, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're all in in one I don't know what what word to use, but it's uh, I like the idea of thinking about self-compassion for our planet. Mm -hmm. Including our planet in our conception of who we are as a species as well as individuals. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, a holistic perspective, an integrated mm -hmm. holistic perspective of this world, our reality, our our universe. Right, right. Yeah, I hope that's the lesson and the story that we come to after all this, and that we can hold on to whatever it is we learn and not revert back to, I don't know if we even can revert back to what we were before. I hope not. There are people who are really trying desperately to drag us back, but I don't think that's possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we would self-destruct before we would actually go backward. Yeah. Yeah, and so this is 
you know, an opportunity for us to look at the story we've written and write a new one. Like, who do we want to be as a species? How do we want to show up for each other? Mm-hmm. And also on, yeah. on, a, on a larger level, what kind of political and economic and social policies do we want to create for ourselves, for all of mm-hmm. us? And I think we... I think we we need to start really thinking on a global level, not just on a nationalistic right. way. Right. Yeah, because we're seeing that we are all interconnected. There's not the separation that we've thought just does not exist. Mm-hmm. And so... Even though we try, we try to yeah. separate things. Like we have these national conflicts or we have these political disagreements, and many of us really hold fast to them and and believe in them very deeply and feel very passionately about them, and yet we have such a profound effect on each other without realizing that, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot would change if we were able to see ourselves as one unit. Right, and there's the famous line that war is a failure of imagination, and I yeah. think that applies to separation in general. Separation, any kind of us and them kind of perspective right. is a failure of imagination, it seems to me. Right. Or just a a poor use of our imagination. Right. Like, can we imagine a different story? I keep coming back to story. That's because I, I love talking about story. <laughs> Me too. I just I think it's all about story because that's what we do. We, we, we constantly tell stories. We tell ourselves stories. We tell other people's stories. And our lives are essentially run by stories. So I think, I think it's so appropriate. Yeah. And I recently came across a book. It's a very small book. And the title is what really drew me to it. It's loving ourselves as if our life depended on it. Mm, I love that. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. And it seems to me that that's where the world is right now. Yeah. That's where we find ourselves. And we, Mm -hmm. we somehow have to learn to not only love ourselves, and you, you talk about how in order to, to have self-compassion, we have to learn to love and accept ourselves. And I, actually, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that dynamic between needing to learn to love and accept ourselves before we can even really be able to practice genuine self-compassion. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, too, because... It's it's a paradox. Carl Rogers said there's this paradox that before we can change, we need to accept. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of self-compassion practice is accepting all the parts of you, accepting, you know, your so-called imperfections and so on. And I'm wondering now, how could we apply that on a global level? It's very difficult to accept, you know, some people, it's hard to accept, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how can we actually love all of the parts of our world? Mm-hmm. That's it's, tricky. It is. I mean, as much as I want to practice that, I often find myself, you know, having knee-jerk reactions in the opposite mm-hmm. direction. Right. <laughs> and the more we fight each other, the worse that gets, actually. Yeah, the more we reinforce those kind of Mm -hmm. stories. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thoroughly loving this conversation. Yeah, (laughs) me too. Me too. We've gone from the personal to the global, which Mm -hmm. is great. Yeah. That's another thing about self-compassion, that it's really not just about you. I see self-compassion as being political because as long as you are being self-critical and limiting your yourself, not living to your full potential, you can't really contribute to society 
from a full capacity. And what would this world be like if we were all compassionate with ourselves? Exactly. I think a lot of our politics is based in fear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's based in the fear of how we'll do the wrong thing or how other people will do bad things. And it's fundamentally a perspective that's completely lacking in compassion. And it always mm-hmm. starts from within because the people that are afraid of what other people are going to do are really coming out of a story about what we fear about ourselves. Right. It, yeah. it always starts with ourselves. So while we're pointing the yeah. finger at others, we're doing it from that, that very place within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, self-criticism is criticism turned inwards, and criticism is self-criticism turned outwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really connected. Right. It's like everything is interconnected, even these dysfunctions and, and mm-hmm. ideas and stories are all interconnected as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's complicated, messy. <laughs> it is. It's not black and white, you know, and having grown up in very much a black and white environment, there's a lot of comfort in that. You know what is what, and you know exactly what to do and what not to do. Stepping outside of that is messy. And there's just never going to be a time when everything is completely figured out and, you know, all the loose ends have been tied up. We're constantly going to be in this place of uncertainty. And, you know, for most of my life, uncertainty was the thing I was most afraid of. But I think if we can learn to be comfortable with uncertainty and comfortable with, you know, our stories changing instead of, you know, getting stuck into one narrative. I think it'll just be a much better place from which to deal with ourselves, deal with other people, whatever happens. We can handle whatever happens in a much better way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And kind of going back to something we were talking about earlier about not going back backward there is one way that i think is a wonderful thing to look back on and actually go back toward and that is the way we were as children young children mm. and the way we are in the world and the way we relate to other people and you write about that in the book right and you know in the title and the subtitle finding your way back to self-compassion. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Because if you think about, you know, a toddler who's learning to walk, they, you know, <laughs> they just keep on, they're going to learn how to walk. Right. They, they don't, don't have an inner critic saying, uh, you know what, you should just give up on that walking thing because <laughs> you're no good at it. <laughs> right. Right. That would be an interesting story to write just as a, an allegory of a child who falls, yeah. his first time falling, and the inner critic perks <laughs> up and says, you're a failure, and just give up. Right. And then you tell yeah, the story I, of, of this blob that never does anything, never moves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but isn't that what we do, though? When we get older, it's like, oh... I failed at that my first try, so I'm not going to do that again. It's sort of this growth-fixed mindset, you know, mm-hmm. that Carol Dweck talks about. And, you know, I think when we're toddlers, we don't have that idea of, you know, oh, well, I don't, and I don't know why that is, why when we're toddlers we don't have that same comparison inner critic. You know, the same thing happens, like, with creativity, a little kid is playing, not performing. You know, they're just, oh, let's see what happens if I paint with this color and with that color. And it's just curiosity that drives. Whereas when we get older, it's like, oh, I have to paint a masterpiece. I have to, I mean, can you imagine the toddler sitting down and saying, you know, I'm going to write the next (laughs) great American novel now. You know, it's really sad. 
that we lose that innocence and just having curiosity drive versus having performance be the driver. Yeah, exactly. As we get older, we think we're becoming so mature and so relevant and important, and yet children, they have so much more wisdom in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And many of us, it seems it takes us an entire lifetime to get back there or to come full circle, to become free enough to just be ourselves again. Yeah, it's about unlearning, which is actually the original title of my book, but my publisher thought it was too cerebral or something. (laughs) I write about it a lot, you know, this thing about unlearning the patterns that we learned as we grew up and coming back to this sort of, and you know, we're never going to completely come back to our childhood way of thinking, but to sort of recapture that curiosity and joy that I think we just get so caught up in performance. And that's really sad, and it's really, it's really hard to be creative when your inner critic is constantly jabbing at you. So I think there's, there's a lot of potential in self-compassion to, to further your creativity and sort of get back to that childhood joy of just doing. You know, I write about playing the piano when I was really young, before I had taken piano lessons. So I didn't actually know how to play, but I was playing and I just loved the sounds that were coming out of the piano, right? And people would stop and listen, you know, my dad, my my mom, and I, I wasn't performing yet, you know? It was still just play. And I I missed that part of myself, for sure. Mm-hmm. And there's another really beautiful line in the book that really stood out, and that is, please play with me, and I will show the world how beautiful you are. Mm. That was about creativity. The creative part of us needs to feel free. You know, if there's comparison, criticism, I think of the creative part of me as just shying away, like, no, I, I'm not going to be there for you if you're going to criticize me. I need to be free to, you know, Anne Lamott, she talks about writing a first draft and being able to just, okay, I'm just experimenting right now. I'm not writing a book right now. I'm just experimenting. And I'm just putting stuff down and playing around with the words. It's a constant practice for me to be able to just let my creativity be free versus, no, you have to write it this way, you have to write it that way. And, you know, it's interesting with this book, it's 67 really short chapters. And originally I was trying to write, you know, your standard self-help book with, you know, a long narrative, and I couldn't do it. It was just not the form that it wanted to take. And I struggle with it because, you know, oh, well, this isn't the right way to write this. This isn't the way a self-help book is supposed to be. And it's like, no, this is what this book is supposed to be. I especially (laughs) liked having lots of short chapters because you... One thing I learned from my father, my father is an amazing artist. And, you know, being a stubborn kid, I resisted learning anything from him. But one time I I actually (laughs) reached out to him and I said, can you give me a lesson? You know, show me something. And basically he said, the most important lesson is editing, you know, Mm. using less, doing more with less. And he, Mm. he basically with very simple drawing that he did, and he's just so good at it. He could capture things with just a few lines. Right. And, it just blew me away. And I've applied that to other things. I mean, in writing, editing is such an important thing. And not just, you know, the post-writing editing, but editing so that you're getting to the core of what you're saying. You're saying it in as concise a way as possible, in a way that grabs you and doesn't have a lot of superfluous stuff to distract, right? Right. 
Yeah, I work really hard on that because I personally don't like reading fluff. You know, just get to the point and tell me from your heart, you know, and not a bunch of pretty words. Hemingway said, write one true sentence. And so that's what I think about. I think about it as sentence by sentence. Is this a true sentence? Is this as clear and as accurate as I can make it to what I'm trying to say? And I tend to write short anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to write concise. And I think that can be applied to life, too. That line mm-hmm. of Hemingway's could be translated to, like, live a true moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? Be authentic. That's beautiful. At, at least in this moment. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's all that we have is this moment. But we're so caught up in, you know, the whole story, the whole life, the whole, you know, I mean... It's amazing how that can be such a difficult thing to just be in Mm. this moment, and then this moment, and then this moment. And another wonderful line of yours from the book that stood out is, we already are what we are. We don't need to strive to be what we already are. Yeah. Yeah, it ties in with, you know, I talk about self-improvement project. For many years, I was a self-improvement project. And part of my learning was to let go of that and just see that I'm whole already and, and I don't need to strive to find myself. It's like, you know, oh, i got to find myself. Well, I'm here, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how we can get caught up in these ideas of striving to find yourself, striving to be yourself when you already are yourself. (laughs) Exactly. It's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. Looking in all the wrong places for where we already are. Yeah. Well, this has been delightful. Any final words? Anything that you'd like to add? Well, I I just really hope we can all come out of this crazy time with more compassion for ourselves and for each other and for our planet and come to a different perspective, a different story. My guest has been Marianne Ingheim. She's a PhD student at the California Institute of Integral Studies and the author of this new book that we've been talking about, Out of Love, Finding Your Way Back to Self-Compassion. Marianne, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And be well. Yeah, you too. Stay safe. (laughs) You too. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. that's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Love is all you need.